On this first Sunday after Easter, but well in the season of Easter, we're going to read um, a few verses from the opening chapter of the closing book of the Bible, Revelation to John. I'll be reading um, chapter 1, verses 4 through 8. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is, who was, and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood. And made us to be a kingdom. Priests serving his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Look, he is coming with the clouds. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And on his account, all the tribes of the earth will wail. So it is to be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. This is the word of the Lord. Lord God, on this day as we gather in worship, may the words of my mouth, may the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight and bring you the joy you give to us. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. So last week on Easter Sunday, I referred to words of a a prayer that I say at virtually every funeral or memorial service that I lead. The prayer reads in part, We thank thee that deep in the human heart is an unquenchable trust that life does not end with death, that the Father who made us will care for us beyond the bounds of our vision, even as he has cared for us in this earthly world. Our hope has been wondrously confirmed in the life and words and resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In the sermon, I then said of all the promises that I make as a pastor, this is the one of which I am most certain. Life does not end with death. I remember as a teenager hearing a seemingly ancient but vibrant Presbyterian minister, who was probably all of about 50 at the time, (laughs) say that the surest aspect of his faith was his belief that when he died, he would be reunited with the grandmother and grandfather who had taken him and his twin brother in when their parents had died and who had raised them to become, respectively, a minister and a physician. I know that I will see their faces again, he said. I know it. I have that same sense of trust. But there is another aspect of the resurrection of Christ that we often don't talk about, an aspect that is part of a larger story that we don't tell enough. This aspect is the redemption, not just of our own lives as individuals, 
but the redemption of the whole of the created order. Just as there is a life to come for individuals, so also there is a life to come for all of creation. The story of the redemption of creation, which is, of course, not separate from our redemption as individuals, is told from Genesis through Revelation in five major acts that unfold in scenes across time as we know it and across eternity, which we can only surmise. The story opens in Genesis in the beginning when in both a divine and human-seeming way, God began to create the heavens and the earth. And as part of that movement, God created us and placed us in the midst of creation to till it and keep it. The story moves quickly into the next scene, only three short chapters later. In what we in Christianity call the fall, the fall of the human race. That instance in which we as humans first expressed our desire to exceed the rather minimal boundaries with which God had surrounded us. And exceeding that occurred when we tasted the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The one tree from which we were forbidden to taste. This leads to the third scene in Genesis 12 where God chooses the people of Israel, selecting them from among the peoples of the world, scattered and confused after the disastrous attempt to reach the heavens through the Tower of Babel. God chooses this one people that God might work through them to receive and pass on God's blessing to all the peoples of the world. This election on the part of God thus begins God's long history covering centuries and narrated in the entire remainder of the Bible of seeking to restore the human race to all that it was created to be. Two millennia into this effort, at least as we humans measure time, God personally takes up residence in the world in the person of Jesus Christ, being conceived in a way that no other human being was said to be conceived being born into the simple beauty of an obscure village manger, then growing up in wisdom and stature to teach at first as an adolescent in the temple and then to teach as an adult the life-giving law that had been given to Moses. Parables like those of the best of the prophets who preceded Jesus and wisdom like the sages whose penchant for proverb and aphorism He had sometimes adopted. In addition, in the way Christ lived, he welcomed and healed people of all nations, races, and stations in life. He ran afoul of authorities, political and religious, whose interests converged in having him silenced and then eliminated. He was ultimately put to death publicly by those authorities. And then three days later, overcomes death through resurrection into the world in a transformed appearance in which he was not immediately recognizable even by those who knew him best. 
but in which he was clearly the same person who had been put to death and was now triumphant over death. A triumph that we celebrated last Sunday and that we celebrate throughout the season of Easter. After this lengthy and crucial third scene, while we may long for an intermission, the fourth scene follows immediately in which we take our place as part of the continuation of God's people. Guided and empowered by God's presence is the Holy Spirit. Seeking as our forebearers sought to pass the blessing on to all people and all nations by bearing particular witness to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the fifth and final scene is the one which we await in both promise and hope, much as we await the end of a novel or a play or an opera or a movie. A scene in which we expect God's final action in and through the return of Christ, of whose time, date, and form we have only hints and images, primarily in the book of Revelation, but whose purpose lies in bringing the human race and all of the created order to its final culmination and redemption. A major fulcrum and turning point in this five-scene story as a major fulcrum. The resurrection of Christ is not only a promise to us as individuals, but it is also a promise to the human race, to the created order. As the funeral prayer says, our hope has been wondrously confirmed by the life and words and resurrection Of Jesus Christ. The promise of redemption is thus both personal and communal. It is both individual and corporate. It is both both solitary and global. The promise of of redemption is as personal to God as God's numbering the hairs on our head. And it is as transcendence as God's creating, bringing a new heaven, and a new earth. It is personal in that we are both solitary individuals noticed by a God whose eye is on the sparrow, while at the same time we are a minuscule part of the universe, like grains of sand or stars in the sky, whose boundaries far exceed our ability to know or measure And yet which, like us, longs for redemption and healing, what the Apostle Paul describes as the whole creation groaning in travail. The whole creation longing for redemption. This story comes in a grand conclusion in the final book of the Bible, the Revelation of St. John. Like many great works of literature, sacred and secular, this book has been received as daunting and confusing. It has been misinterpreted. It has been marshaled for political and theological purposes. It has been misused as a club for fear and judgment. 
It has been reduced in beauty and power when its figurative symbols, numbers, and images are transferred into literal points in time or literal places on a map. And when its poetry is converted into prose, proposition, or prediction. Perhaps most of all in many churches, especially churches like ours, the book of Revelation has suffered a long and slow neglect. Like family lore tucked away in the attic because no one feels equipped to speak about it, about its more troubling aspects especially when the family is gathered for Thanksgiving dinner and football. It is better just to eat turkey and let sleeping books lie. (laughs) Yet most of all, this aforementioned book of Revelation bears witness to the nature of God's promised redemption for all of creation. And consequently, when we avoid it, We deny ourselves the resources, at the very least, of a beautiful expression of welcome and promise, as well as an an encouragement to action that that promise issues. Listen, for example, to the way this final book of the Bible bears witness to the individual and personal nature of our life that does not end with death. God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. And there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying. Neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. Who among us has not derived some measure of comfort when even upon the death of someone we dearly love, we have been able to say, at least she's now at peace. Neither sorrow, nor crying, nor any more pain. Listen as well to the command to the communal nature of the promise in Revelation. Found in this very same section of the book. And I saw a new heaven And a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city. New Jerusalem. Coming down out of heaven like a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven. Saying, behold, the tabernacle of God is with people. And God will dwell with them and they shall be his people And God himself shall be with them and be their God. Of this communal section, at the conclusion of the book of Revelation, and therefore at the conclusion of the entire Bible, the late Presbyterian scholar Brevard Childs wrote, Revelation pronounces and enacts ultimate divine victory so as to energize and encourage each generation of believers. The new heavens and the new earth do not simply replace the old one as though God starts all over. Rather, the world, God's good creation, 
is redeemed, not replaced. God does not make all new things, but God makes all things new. The world, the object of God's, of the Creator's love, is ultimately important to God. The kingdom of God in this world is not, however, a matter of our own human achievement, but rather it is a matter of the end-of-time action of God. The new Jerusalem is not built Babel-like from earth, but rather comes from God's side as the fulfillment of the divine promise and demonstration of God's faithfulness. In addition, Childs points out that the fulfillment of God's purposes resides in a city. In the biblical story, human history starts in a garden, and the city is actually built by Cain, a murderer, as a result of human sin. Yet the conclusion of this story in Revelation does not nullify history and seek to return us to the Garden of Eden. Instead, it brings the garden into the city. A city represents human community. It represents life together. A city is not individualistic, but is communal. In the church, the community of faith is the anticipation of this new city. According to Childs, the final picture is true to the dual emphasis found in the book of Revelation. There are pictures of exclusion. There are implications that not everyone will be there. No sinner, nothing sinful. And yet there are pictures of transformation and ultimate inclusion. This is the duality in the book. The city is not just for the faithful few, but it is inconceivably large. It cannot be measured by human beings. The kings and nations of the earth will be there. The nations are not only destroyed, but are finally healed, walk by God's light, and bring their gifts to God. The city has walls and gates that, functions as, that function as boundary markers to separate insiders from outsiders. But in the book of Revelation, the gates are never closed. At the coffee hour after the early service, somebody listened to this. I mean, somebody approached me with a troubled look on their face. But what about the people that shoot up the synagogues? Are they going to be there? I don't want them to be there. I said, well, <laughs> it's a great question. And there's not an ultimate answer that any human can give you. But that's part of the dual emphasis in Revelation. It is a picture, yes, of exclusion. And it is a picture, yes, of radical inclusion. Of action on the part of God 
to redeem and make things right. So I dodged the question. (laughs) I hope it was a holy dodge. The scripture that we read earlier that Patrick read contains opening words from this book that closes the Bible. Grace to you and peace, he began, from him who was and who is and who is to come. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord, the beginning and the end, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. From the time we were children, we have loved to sing. He's got the whole world in his hands. He's got the whole wide world in his hands. The book of Revelation promises he's got the whole creation in his hands. Many years ago, at the height of the nuclear freeze movement, I heard Professor Walter Brueggemann, who's one of the great Old Testament professors of our day, say, and I am now paraphrasing from 30-something years ago, but in a small seminar, Brueggemann said, I do not believe that the world will be destroyed in a nuclear holocaust. As able and as foolish as we might be, to bring that about. I believe he said that God is ultimately committed to creation. But if we take that for granted, he said, we defame the nature of God's commitment. Rather, God's promise to redeem the entire of creation should motivate us all the more to till and keep the garden in which we have been placed, that it become as much as possible to resemble the redeemed creation that God will ultimately bring. I do not know if Walter Brueggemann was a supporter of the nuclear freeze movement or not, but what struck me was the rock-solid but not Pollyannish confidence he expressed in God's ultimate commitment to creation. Because God has promised to redeem all of creation, just as God redeems each of us individually, how can we respond in any way other than to strive to make the earthly city in which we live and for which we remain responsible as nearly akin to the heavenly city to come as is possible. No more crying, no more tears, no more sorrow, no more pain, no more loneliness, no more warfare, no more greed, no more tyranny, no more authoritarianism, no more hunger, no more homelessness, no more disease. God is Alpha and Omega, beginning and end. Why on earth shouldn't we rejoice in this? Why on earth shouldn't we take comfort in this? Why on earth shouldn't we act out of the power and the hope and the courage that this promise inspires? Why?
in all of creation, wouldn't we act to till and keep the garden? Amen.